Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips. Good morning, everybody. Glad to see you all online with us this morning for NTWC Live. We've got a great program for you today. Um, our guy who just disappeared for a while last year and then managed to come back. So you'll hear from Josh Morgan in just a few minutes. We are excited uh, to be doing these programs. Uh, this is the uh, first one this week. We've got another one tomorrow uh, with Dr. Phil Plasbach as he updates his hurricane seasonal forecast. As Alex mentioned, we couldn't do it without our sponsor, South Pottery Island, USAA. Plylocks, the hurricane clips folks, uh, they may be being purchased up in a big way right now in, uh, in parts of the Gulf Coast. So uh, the dramatic music in the background, let's go over to Bill Reed, who comes to us today from Houston. Bill. Good morning, everybody, and uh, thanks for being with us again. Uh, tropics are active. Uh, we had a land, we've had two landfalls this morning, one in India, south of Mumbai, Tropical Cyclone Sarga. Josh informed me there was a Category 1 at landfall. And of more interest to us is what's happening with uh, Crystal Ball. And if I do this right, I'll be able to show you the radar as it's made landfall. And here we go. And here we go. Uh, this is a, a, a radar that's been very useful on this storm, uh, Saban Kui radar, which is uh, on the uh, uh, Bay of Campeche coast, uh, uh, just to the east of where the... Uh, sorry about that. My phone went off on me there. The uh, uh, system made landfall just to the west of Ciudad del Carmen this morning. And as you can see there, it had this strong rain band. It's had big rain band over the Yucatan, western Yucatan has been reforming and firing over that area each night for the last three days. So incredible rainfall totals uh, have been occurring throughout the area and the flooding and the loss of life from that will be the, the main story we uh, hear about uh, from that. Uh, hopefully we've gotten a, uh, a uh, update. Yeah, there we go. Uh, the latest forecast uh, now with, with increasing confidence, but still some uncertainty as to the track. Uh, the models have been fo focused on the Louisiana coastline uh, 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 for several days now. And as you can see, the official forecast uh, keeps it a tropical storm and brings it inland uh, to south central Louisiana. Uh, so uh, start paying attention to it. Uh, uh, the intensity forecast is still a bit uncertain, but uh, hopefully it'll stay in the tropical storm mode. And hopefully it'll keep on moving so we don't have the flooding issues that they're seeing down in uh, South and Central America. Okay, uh, what you really are here to see is what we're gonna do with uh, uh, Josh this year on the, uh, on the thing. And, and he hit the jackpot last year with, with uh, Dorian out in the Bahamas. Uh, he tells me he's been on the, made uh, landfalls just about every continent that has them and he still needs to get India. And he probably would have made that mark this year if it hadn't have been for uh, the COVID issues. So Josh, take it away. Hey, thanks, Bill. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Tim. It's, uh, it's awesome to be back with you guys. I'm sorry we couldn't uh, do it in person this year. I was really, I always look forward to my, to my April on South Padre Island, Texas. And uh, I'm looking forward to that 
again next year. But uh, this is awesome as well. I'm very excited to be able to present my experience in Hurricane Dorian. So let me uh, let me bring that up. Alrighty. So my presentation is on Dorian from Ground Zero: Measuring and Surviving the Storm of the Century. And that might sound like hyperbole, but it is not. It is. I will I will support that statement in just a second. So just to refresh everyone's memory, of course, most of the people watching this presentation are very familiar with Dorian. It was the big headline last year. And you can see here's the bird's eye view or the, the big picture view of its life cycle. Started out as a wave in the middle of the Atlantic, moved west, clipped the Caribbean. Uh, then when it got out into the open Atlantic, it exploded into a really intense hurricane, smashed the Bahamas at maximum intensity. And then very quickly cut north, missed Florida, clipped the Carolinas, and then unraveled over the Canadian Maritimes. And here's sort of the fact sheet on the storm. And you could see uh, the dates for this thing. It was basically the um, right at the climatological peak of the season, maybe just right before, but the timing of it made sense. Uh, the peak intensity was a whopping 160 knots or 185 miles an hour, making this thing one of the real legends of the Atlantic. And you can see that a lot of people felt the wrath of this thing. Uh, just uh, a lot of land masses got stricken by it when it was at hurricane force. Now, for the purposes of this presentation, what I'm specifically interested in is the landfall on Great Abaco Island in the Bahamas when it hit at 160 knots. Now, that's really significant because when you look at history, you could see where Dorian Falls. This is the list of all known Category 5 hurricane landfalls in North America uh, as far back as records go, which is the middle of the 19th century. And you can see that if you rank them by wind speed, Dorian is at the top, at the very top, tied with the Labor Day hurricane of 1935 in Florida, both of which had estimated winds of 160 knots or 185 miles an hour at landfall. And when you see it put like this, you can see how serious this storm was and why I call it the storm of the century. And here it is at that dramatic moment as it was coming ashore on Great Abaco Island. You could see that beautifully formed eye and just that intense looking core. Now, very fortunately, I was there to document this historic event. In fact, that star represents where I was. And that's, of course, when I was inside the eye. So probably a lot of people watching this presentation know who I am, but just in case you don't, let me give you some really quick background on me. Uh, I'm a hurricane chaser, uh, very specifically a hurricane chaser. Folks always ask me, hey, do you, do you chase uh, tornadoes or snowstorms? No, I do not. I am very not versatile. I'm, uh, I'm narrowly obsessed with hurricanes, and I've been chasing them for almost 30 years. Uh, my first chase, I was too young to even uh, – rent a car to, to drive after the storm so i i chased it by train and this was <laughs> this was before the internet even so uh, back then it was paper maps and things like that i chase around the world every hemisphere uh, i chase very aggressively i'm competitive about it i treat it like a sport and also i do not have any formal meteorological credentials uh, i'm very very good at collecting accurate quality controlled field data that's what i do but no i am technically not a scientist I'm very obsessive about what I do. Here's my portfolio of chases. This is the 49 hurricanes and typhoons in which I penetrated at least the eye wall. For me, if I don't get in the eye wall, it doesn't count. It's considered a bust. Uh, so these are the 49 eye wall scores that I've had. I'm wondering where 50, uh, when and where 50 is going to be. I thought maybe it might be crystal ball uh, in Texas or Louisiana this week, but uh, not feeling so, so sure about that this morning, but uh, we'll see.
So my chasing, people ask me, well, why do you chase? Why do you do this? Definitely, I think the initial itch was definitely uh, some kind of thrill-seeking thing, you know, just uh, just getting that adrenaline rush from hurricanes that I do every time. And that's still motivating. But for me, the big thing now, the thing that really gets me excited and drives me is what I call truth-seeking. So it started for me about 10 years ago. You know, there were a couple of big typhoon landfalls in the Philippines. Now, the Philippines, in case you don't know, you know, the, the, the U.S. states of like Oklahoma and Kansas are probably like the tornado capital of the world. Well, when it comes to hurricanes, it's the Philippines. Of course, over there, they're called typhoons. But the Philippines is the world capital. They get category five landfalls like a, a couple of times a decade at least. And there were a couple of big ones about 10 years ago. And there were no meteorological records of these events as they came ashore. Nothing. No, no recon data, no ground stations, nothing. All we knew about these storms were what we could kind of glean from satellite intensity estimates. And I found that really frustrating that these incredible landfall events were not being recorded. And then I realized, hey, you know, I can make a difference because I'm hunting these things down anyway, uh, often in remote areas. And so that is my big driving passion now is to just get inside the cores of these cyclones coming ashore in remote areas. Now, because I'm just hopping all over the world and sometimes jumping between islands, you know, on little tiny planes and stuff, I got to be super portable. You know, I don't have any like big van tricked out with equipment and stuff like that. Everything's got to be small and easy to carry around. So uh, the things that I, I shoot to measure are air pressure um, and take, and then I also take very, uh, meticulous video that's all time stamped. I keep track of my location at all times. And just with those bits of data, quality, accurately recorded data, I can make all kinds of inferences afterward about the hurricane's uh, size, its structure, and other things about it. And it's not just for me. Scientists actually use my data. The National Hurricane Center uses my data. PhDs use my data. My data become very useful oftentimes is like sort of the missing puzzle piece when they're doing post analysis on storms. I think of myself as kind of like the hunting dog for scientists. So I'm not the scientist, but I'm hunting down the data for them. And what am I hunting exactly? Well, like I said, I'm going after the core of the hurricane, that inner part, because that's where all the really meaningful data is. In a lot of, uh, or in a few recent storms, uh, my data were basically the only data at landfall. And a good recent example would be Hurricane Willa in Mexico. There were basically no observations from the core of that, except for the sensors that I, I put uh, at various points in the landfall region. And from those data, the Hurricane Center was able to kind of reconstruct what happened and it made their report more complete. And that was awesome. I felt really good about that. All right. Skip, that's me. So let's get back to Dorian. And I thought I'd bring you along on the chase. I think uh, a lot of folks don't realize how complicated chasing is and how, uh, how emotional the process is. So I thought I'd bring you through uh, the sort of the decision-making process step-by-step step so you can see what it's like. So again, here's the big picture track of Dorian from its birth in the tropics to its unraveling, its demise over Canada. And if we zoom in close, you can see this is a significant part of its life cycle. So Dorian was first named, I think on, it was 24th of August. I was in New York at the time. And my initial instinct was that I was going to chase it in the Dominican Republic. And so I booked a flight to Santo Domingo and I thought, okay, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to catch this thing as a hurricane on the South coast of the Dominican Republic. Cool. And I very quickly canceled that plan and instead decided to go to Punta Cana, which is uh, at the very Eastern tip of the Dominican Republic. And that was my plan. And I was ready to go. But as this thing entered the Caribbean, it never really, never really got going. 
And of course, as a lot of people know, that's climatologically pretty normal. Eastern Caribbean is often fairly unfriendly to tropical cyclones. So I canceled that plan and just decided to wait until this thing got out of the Caribbean. Sure enough, uh, cut two days later, it's out in the open Atlantic. It's a monster hurricane. And all the computer models are saying that this is going to ram the east coast of Florida as an intense hurricane. So I flew down to Orlando. And by the way, that's an MO of mine. I never fly into coastal airports. I always fly into inland airports and then drive to where I want to be. That's a little chaser dude rule of mine. And then from there, I drove to West Palm Beach and I slept overnight. And then I noticed, of course, that the computer models were changing again. They started to show the hurricane and not hitting Florida, but actually stalling just offshore. And then they started to show it making a very quick U-turn or not a U-turn, but a really sharp turn off of Florida. And it was at that point that I realized that if I wanted to taste this historic storm, if I wanted to sample it, if I wanted to measure it, if I wanted to get inside of it, I had to get off the Florida peninsula and head to the Bahamas, specifically to Great Abaco Island. And that's what I did. And here's my plane ticket. I kind of saved it because it, it has significance to me. This was the last flight onto Great Abaco Island uh, to the airport in Marsh Harbor. Uh, and, uh, after that, once we landed, it was the day before the hurricane, the uh, airport closed down and that was that. And the airport did not open for a very, very long time afterward. And you'll see why in just a moment. Now, in case you're wondering, Marsh Harbor is sort of like, it's sort of like the de facto capital of Great Abaco Island. It's a town of about 6,000 people. It's the commercial and administrative hub for the island. And I like to show this view so you could see the Bahamas are, you know, it's a separate country. You know, we think of it as far away, but look how close it is. You know, that flight from West Palm Beach to Marsh Harbor is really, God, it's probably like 40 minutes. I mean, it's nothing. You just, you pop right over there. You're practically in Florida. So I landed in Marsh Harbor. And then from there, I drove north to a place called Treasure Key. That's about a 20 mile drive there, what you're looking at. And I had a place staked out uh, where you could see the red circle. And here's a dramatic selfie that I took when I arrived there. And this is where I was gonna ride out the hurricane. Now at this point, Dorian was a category four. So it was a serious hurricane, not yet at the kind of historic level, but it was definitely a serious hurricane heading toward me. And I thought, okay, these condos are sturdy. This is going to be an incredible front row seat to this hurricane. I'm going to get incredible video. I'm going, to, I'm going to capture incredible data. This is going to be like, wow, this is going to be amazing, this location. And here's the other side of the, that bank of condos, what they look like. These are three-story buildings made mostly of concrete, but not entirely. And uh, this is a final shot I took as the sun was going down. This is the this is the night before Dorian struck this island. And I always look at this picture because it shows you the beauty of Great Abaco Island. And just you can imagine the lifestyle of just living there, how idyllic and how pretty it is. And just like it's so serene. And it kind of breaks my heart looking at this because that was kind of the that that was the last night of paradise for this place for a very long time to come. And when I say very long, I'm talking like over a decade, probably because of the the impact that happened here. So I tried, I forced myself to go to go to sleep for a couple hours. That's uh, something I've been trying to be, get better about is getting some sleep when I'm on chases. So I'm not just going, 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 because usually by the time the hurricane strikes, I'm exhausted and I'm just running totally on adrenaline, which is not healthy. I woke up in the middle of the night or actually in the wee morning hours and I started to hear the wind howling and it was just, you know, I've been in a lot of hurricanes, but there's something about the howl that started to creep me out. I started to get like a, a spooked kind of feeling, which I usually don't get. You guys know I'm like rabid about chasing hurricanes. Something about it made me uneasy. 
And I remember I was laying in bed and I went on my phone and I started looking at the recon data. They were doing a recon flight in the storm and it started showing category five winds. Something was happening in the storm. It looked like it was uh, kind of having some sort of upswing. And I was like, oh boy. And I started thinking about it and I'm like, you know what? I don't think that this is a good place to ride out the storm. I just started feeling like I was playing games with my life. So late that night or probably around three or four in the morning, I packed the car and I drove back down to Marsh Harbor and it was a it was a dark, lonely drive, but I just felt like, you know what, this is what this is what I have to do to be safe. I'm a very aggressive chaser, but I've gotta I've gotta, you know, I need to make sure I survive these events. So there were actually two reasons I went back down um, to Marsh Harbor. One was, as I said, I didn't quite feel safe in that location in Treasure Key. But the other reason was that the storm was moving due west at this point, and it was very, very important to me to get in Dorian's eye. I didn't want to just get in the eye wall. I wanted to get in that eye. It was extremely important to me, and I didn't want to miss that. So I figured I should go back down south, and that's what I did. Now, if we zoom in on the storm's track, these are the hourly positions as the storm uh, passed over Great Abaco and then Grand Bahama Islands. And you could see the star that's marked I Cyclone. That's where I was. And you could see I nailed it pretty good, uh, my final location. Here's a zoomed in look and you could see, yeah, that 2 p.m. location is basically, that 2 p.m. position of the Hurricane Center is that's basically right on top of me. And a very, very close view you could see. I actually had two locations during the storm. Position A was where I was at the beginning of the storm. And then during the eye, I had to relocate because of damage to the building. I'll talk about that in a little while. Uh, B is where I relocated to. And the distance between those two points is about, <coughs> excuse me, two thirds of a mile. All right. So now let's go through the impact and what I measured and what I saw. So when I got back to Marsh Harbor, I was like, all right, this hurricane's looking really strong. There's two things I need to, I need to figure out. I need to find a building that's strong, like IE concrete, and two, that's elevated, that's, that's high enough that I'm not going to get hit by the storm surge. So there's a hilly part, there's a hilly neighborhood of Marsh Harbor, and I drove around it until I found a big concrete-looking building, which was the Central Abaco Primary School, and sure enough, it was open as a shelter. I generally don't like to go use uh, hurricane shelters as places to ride out storms because it cuts down on your autonomy a little bit, but uh, it seemed like the right bet. And so that's where I decided to ride at this storm at this primary school with probably a couple hundred other people. And uh, take a look at the outside of the uh, building. This is like the parking lot. Take a look at those trees. Remember what they look like because it's going to be radically transformed in just a little while. All right. So once I got there, I set up. I set up with two barometers. I always try to have at least two instruments going so I have some data redundancy. So if I get really, really wild readings, I'll have another instrument to corroborate. So I went down to this, uh, this shore, which was not too far away, and um, I, I uh, got sea level pressure. And then I used the devices as uh, pressure altimeters to then figure out my elevation at the school so I could then uh, calibrate for sea level pressure. And then I also had a couple of cameras going. And with those tools, I recorded this event. Now, recording or documenting Dorian was challenging. Documenting storms that are so violent like this uh, make it hard to do good documentation. But even so, I was able to get what I needed to get to infer all kinds of things about this storm. All right. So one of the first things I do when I come back after a hurricane is I like to reconstruct a very detailed chronology of what happened. Okay, so what I do is I go through my video footage minute by minute. It's all very precisely timestamped. 
and I go through my pressure data and I then create sort of a log of what happened. And then the next thing I do is I try to sort of identify the phases of the hurricane and I color code those. So with this, you could see, you didn't have to read all this, don't worry, but just to give you a general idea, Pink means we're getting into the eye wall. Red means we're in what seemed to be the peak winds. Blue is when we're in the calm eye. Now, these are, I was not measuring wind data, so these are subjectively assigned phases. Uh, and that means they're not exactly precise, but I think they give, they, they help in terms of giving a good idea of the duration of the event and also the size of the hurricane and things like that. And you'll see, I'm going to show you video clips of certain parts of this chronology and you'll see that it's pretty easy to identify these phases you could see them even though they're subjectively assigned here's another look at the same information and the same data but here visualized um, as a graph and you can see as the pressure fall we go into the pink which is the eye wall and then the dark pink which is the peak winds and then the blue of the uh, which is the calm eye and you can see that the duration of that really really bad part was about an hour and a half i measured 913.4 millibars in the eye which is by, by far the lowest i've recorded in any chase uh, and uh, i'll talk more about that in just a moment so now what i want to do is bring you through the experience i want to bring you through specific moments of this event because I think it was quite fascinating just being the strongest hurricane ever to hit North America. All right, so back at our chronology, first what I want to show you is the outer eye wall, okay? And I want to be clear, I'm not suggesting this storm did not have concentric eye walls. It had one consolidated eye wall. What I'm talking about is what it was like just as we started to enter the outer part of that one eye wall. And just to give you a little visual help here, here's the radar. And you could see, okay, this storm has a single consolidated eye wall. And that star is where I was. That's Marsh Harbor. And you could see this video clip is just as we were just getting into that eye wall. And you can see we're already getting very destructive winds, but we're nowhere near the really bad stuff yet. So let's take a look at that. Just before noon, and we're at 960 millibars. The wind is ripping really hard, but the scary thing is, we have like another almost 40 millibars to lose. We have a lot of isobars to go through, a lot of gradients. I think the wind's gonna get worse. Wow. All right. So that's just a small, oops, sorry about that. A little, there we go. So that's just a small taste of what's to come. Now, by the way, I wanted to give you a little more detail about where I was. So once the storm really started to hit, the uh, the military dudes that were watching the uh, shelter just made everyone, everyone had to get in classrooms. And one, your rule number one when you're chasing is don't be a nuisance and don't argue with authorities. You must do as instructed because the last thing you want to do is be some person from out of town who's getting in the way and disobeying rules. So my choices were to hunker down in a classroom or ride the storm out in my car in the parking lot, which would be a really, really bad idea in a 185 mile an hour wind. So I chose to be a classroom and I was in a, so it was a, it was just a simple four wall concrete classroom 
with exterior walls on all sides. Uh, this school was actually a complex of very small buildings. Uh, and I was with two families and three other men. So there were 11 of us. And there were windows on the upwind side of the room and windows on the downwind side. The windows, and this is all, this will, I'm giving you all this information so you can understand what's happening in the video. The windows on the upwind side, meaning they were facing the wind, were boarded up and had cyclone shutters on them. The windows on the downwind side, we could actually open the cyclone shutters and look through the cracks. And that's how, that's all the, the filming that I'm doing during uh, sort of the brunt of the hurricane is is through that view, through the downwind side of the windows. And that's what we're looking at. And we're looking out toward the front, uh, we're, we're looking out from the front of the building into the parking lot. And you can see there's cars parked near us that are getting hammered pretty good, but they're actually slightly protected by the building that we're in. All right, so now that I gave you that orientation, now what I wanna show you is the transition from being in the eye wall to being in what the inner eye wall when stuff starts to get really nuts when we start to get those really crazy turbulent gusts and everything we start to get into something of a whiteout and you can see it really starting to crank now one thing you're going to notice in this uh in this next segment is everyone in the room is rubbing their ears it's it's killing everyone's ears now people think that that's because the pressure in a hurricane is low it's actually that's not what causes that when your ears hurt during a hurricane, it's because you're in a very turbulent part of it and you're getting extreme wind gusts passing over the building, which are causing temporary uh, pressure fluctuations and that that's what your ears are feeling. And we were getting such violent gusts that that's what was causing it. And it is really painful. You feel like your eardrums are gonna totally bust. So here we go, let's take a look at that. Oh, actually, I forgot. I wanted to do some science nerd out on you before I show you the video. You gotta eat your vegetables first. <laughs> um, this is actually really fascinating. Okay, so this is a close-up view of the data that I showed you before, but this is a close-up view of just the, the core of the hurricane. Now, notice something really interesting. The video I just showed you was, was from the light pink part, which was, okay, we're in the eye wall, but we're not in the inner part of it yet. Notice that in that part, the pressure is dropping fairly in a fairly sort of behaved, uh, steady way. Now, as we get into the inner part of the eye wall, where we get into what seem to be the peak winds and the maximum turbulence, notice how the pressure starts to get really, it fluctuates kind of wildly, that the line is more jagged. There's like these up and down fluctuations. That is a good indicator of what the, in, the inner core of a violent hurricane is like. There's a lot of turbulence in that inner eye wall. There are like all kinds of localized disturbances and eddies and maybe some mesovortices going on in that. And even, when, even though you can't see these things happening, you can, you can see them in the pressure trace afterward. The pressure trace is like almost like taking an x-ray. It shows you things that are happening that you maybe can't see because everything outside is just turning white. So what I'm going to show you in this next video is as we transition from the light pink to the dark pink, we're going into like the, the kind of really extreme part of the hurricane. All right, so let's take care. Okay, so you, you digested your science part. Now you can have the dessert. Okay, here's the video for that. See the cars bobbing up and down. We're, uh, we're getting full on raked. 
All right. So then the, the hurricane slowly crept over us. And then we were in that inner, inner part of the eye wall. And I found this in violent hurricanes that the worst part of the hurricane, when it gets especially violent, is actually, it literally is almost, it, it's right at that boundary between the eye wall and the eye. It, it's very interesting. In fact, I've noticed it in many hurricanes that some of the most violent gusts they almost happen right as you're entering the eye. It's like the final, final gasp from the eye wall is sometimes like the worst part of it. So now I'm going to show you a video from that part. So this was always, this was like my, as a chaser and as a hurricane nerd, this is like my lifelong fantasy. It's like, okay, I want to be in a like, like high end category five hurricane on a tropical island or technically subtropical, but you know what I mean? with you know flat terrain nothing to interfere with the wind flow and it's daytime it's like optimal conditions to record this event and i was like wow this is perfect but it actually wasn't what i expected and, the, and what i mean by that is that you <laughs> you couldn't see anything okay so i'm going to show you now in the chronology i'm going to show you when we're deep deep in that eye wall and how basically the conditions got so turbulent and crazy. In fact, one of the specialists at the hurricane center looked at the video and he's like, it was like it, your, your video actually would have been better if the hurricane weren't as bad. Cause you'd be able to see something. <laughs> so everything just kind of turns white, but I want to give you uh, an idea about that. And what's really interesting is that a lot of the really extreme destruction and some of the weird stuff, like for example, cars in front of the window, just blowing away. A lot of that happened behind this sort of curtain of white that just kind of happened for about 30 minutes. But let me show show you a little piece of that just so you could see what it was like not to see anything. You can occasionally see debris flying by. Those are the upwind windows which we're worried about caving in. All right, yeah, so we were just getting, we were getting, uh, we are getting full on raked there. So I couldn't see what was going on, but the barometers could, and they were recording some incredible things. So when I went back over the data afterward, it was the data from this part of the event that most blew my mind and was like, whoa. So the data showed some really incredible air pressure drops over very short periods of time. And they suggest that there were some very, very extreme pressure gradients in the inner core of this thing. So Dorian was moving steadily west at six knots or six nautical miles an hour as it passed over my location as I went right through it. Okay. So therefore you can assume that the devices that were at my location and that were recording data in that room sampled one nautical mile of the cyclone every 10 minutes. And therefore I could take pressure changes over 10 minute periods and therefore understand those to basically indicate the gradients over one nautical mile samples of the cyclone. And what I got when I did that, when I went through the data was I found many examples of gradients well over 10 millibars a nautical mile and some much higher. And that is, that is nuts. Um, now, of course, these are rough calculations and they don't take into account smaller scale features within, within the system. And I and granted they're, they're rough, but they still give you an idea of just the incredible sort of uh, just the incredible gradients in that inner core. And let me show you some of the maximum ones. So this is a the same data, but we're zoomed in even closer on the inner inner eye wall, and you could see uh, the values that I calculated. The peak gradient that I got was twelve point four millibars per nautical miles, which is just that's like yeah, that's like off the charts. That's really crazy. 
And it was during that very sort of jagged period when the pressure was fluctuating wildly up and down. And I do this for all the major hurricanes I'm in. And I wanted to show you how Dorian uh, compared to some of the other crazy ones that I've been in. And you could see Dorian totally kicks butt, just just blows all the other ones out of the water. Uh, uh, second place is Hurricane Patricia in Mexico. Now, Patricia was the strongest hurricane ever observed on Earth. It's estimated uh, sustained winds of 185 knots or 250 miles an hour. It weakened before it got to me on the coast, but it still had a really intense core there, 10.5 millibars per nautical mile. Michael in the Florida Panhandle was also pretty high. Maria as well. Those are some of the legends in terms of gradients that I calculated, but nothing like Durian. I mean, Durian was just like, it knocked all the other ones out of the water. And that was really something to see. All right, so now... I want to bring you to one of those magical parts of a hurricane, which is as you transition from the inner eye wall into the eye, which I always, it's always just kind of a very, for me, it's almost like a religious experience. All right. So here it is on the chronology, transitioning from the red, the peak winds to the eye. And here's what it was like. Now you'll notice um, in part of this video, uh, my uh, someone in the room took my phone for part of this and she filmed a couple of shots while I was busy uh, trying to keep the, the windows from caving in the upwind, uh, the windows on the upwind side of the room, uh, the board started to rip off and uh, the, the shutters started to, to bend inward. We we're very concerned because if those wind, if those shutters gave, the room was going to become a shooting gallery of flying debris. And in fact, I remember at the time thinking we were very unlucky. And as it turned out, we were the luckiest of anyone in the entire school because other classrooms in the, on the complex had blown open and people were, you know, just having to dive under furniture, you know, in a category five hurricane with the roof gone. I mean, it was, it was an ugly scene all around. So we were pretty lucky, but here you can see, watch it. And one other thing to look at in this clip, notice while we're holding the furniture against the shutters that it starts to kind of get bright and there's actually sunshine, even though the wind is roaring and it's probably blowing at 130 knots, there's sunshine coming through the slats in the, the cracks in the shutters. We were getting so close to the eye that we were actually getting sunshine, even though we were in winds well over hurricane force. It was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. I took this still from my video. This is kind of a magical moment. It almost has like a religious look. This is as the sunshine was coming through the, the, the window slats and everyone was just looking out, you know, as the eye was passing over us. And here's the radar shot from this time. And uh, yeah, you know, this was like a bullseye, you know, just nailed this one real good right in the middle. And it's a, that's a, you know, as, as a lot of the folks watching this presentation know, that's a that's a, a from a hurricane standpoint, this is a beautiful specimen. Just the, the way this eye wall is formed. I mean, this was really. I won't see something like this again in my lifetime. I don't think. All right. So now what I want to do is bring you through the eye. Okay. Um, and this is a longer clip because I just want you to experience it as I experienced it as I went outside. So the door was, was wedged shut. We couldn't open it because debris had slammed against it and dented it. We had to kind of force it open. And uh, the video starts from when we forced the door open and just, just, um, you know, you're going to come on a walk with me and you're going to see what this place looks like after it got hammered by a 160 knot eye wall. Alrighty. So, uh, it was, there's something really apocalyptic about that. I just remember being like, whoa, here's a still of that stadium. eye." you could see it was a little, it was getting a little misty because the, uh, the hurricane was interacting with land, but you could very clearly see that, that shape, that perfect shape of that eye wall. It was really, it was quite gorgeous. Uh, notice that the cars were mutilated. Like I've never seen this after a hurricane where like, like, the, like the, the trunks and hoods were just like ripped open and the engines inside were mangled, just like 
crazy looking stuff I'd like never seen in a hurricane before. It was like really like, whoa. Um, you could see a lot of concrete uh, parts of the, even though the building was concrete or blocks, it was, uh, it was just like in a lot of places just smashed and like ripped open. Parts of the building that were not concrete were just no match for this hurricane. This wood part of the school just, just collapsed like a house of cards. Now I want to show you a couple of interesting before and after views. Uh, so this is the view from the window where I was shooting from. This is right before the eye wall arrived. Now the little black Honda to the left of the tree, that's actually my car, okay? And notice there's like a truck next to it. And this is right as we were entering the eye, you could see the truck next to my car is gone. It just blew away, it kind of ended up on the other side of the parking lot. Interestingly, my car just stayed, it didn't even have a scratch. And it shows you that hurricane, violent hurricane uh, eye wall winds have the kind of erratic localized nature of uh, tornadoes. It's like the, the damage can be very streaky and weird. It's not, it's not uniform, even over small areas. And here's another before and after. Again, this is the view from the window. This is during the eye wall. So notice on the right, there's a there's a tree, a felled tree. Uh, and now look at that same tree during the eye. This is right after the inner eye wall when we're in the eye. And notice, oh, wow, okay, it's from a different angle. But now there's a car on top of that tree. I don't know where that car came from, which direction. I, I, I literally don't know where it came from. It's just once the eye arrived, once that cloak of whiteness disappeared, there was like a car sitting on top of that tree. Don't know which direction it came from. This is the front of the building. I told you uh, earlier on to remember that shot, all those lush green trees. And that's what it looked like afterward. These trees are actually designed by nature to just let go of their leaves. And that's actually how they survived. They were able to withstand the wind because they just let go of all the resistance. All those leaves just flew right off. But it doesn't look like a subtropical island anymore. It looks like we're in uh, Siberia in the middle of the winter. All right. So uh, I measured, as I said, 913.4 millibars in the eye. It was by far the lowest thing I ever recorded. Now, you guys saw my pressure trace and you saw how it went down, but there's no recovery. It doesn't come back up. I don't have a hurricane V. I just have like what looks like half of a V. And you guys are probably wondering, okay, why? What happened to the rest of the data? Well, the building was badly damaged, and uh, after talking with my roommates, uh, the, the people that I rode out this, the front half of the storm with in that room, we decided that we needed to relocate to another uh, building in order to survive. And uh, once you relocate, you can't keep collecting data. The data wouldn't have integrity. You know, you have to keep the instruments in a controlled environment. So I had to make the hard choice. I really couldn't decide if I wanted to just stay there and risk it and keep collecting data or leave and find safety. And actually, honestly, one of the one of the factors that influenced me was just that out of the 11 of us, only that we only had three cars that were still functioning that weren't destroyed. One of them was mine. And uh, I felt some responsibility, you know, three other people needed a ride in my car to get to safety. And I just, uh, I decided that maybe that was a little more important than science. So I stopped recording at that point. It's possible my lowest pressure would have been lower if I'd kept recording. Who knows? Um, you know, I just try not to <laughs> let that gnaw away at me. Uh, but, you know, when I look at when I look at my pressure graph, the way it looks, it looks like the, the pressure is starting to edge up again. So there's a good chance that that 913 was actually a real minimum. All right. So I said we had to relocate. And here's a map of this part of the island. A is where we were, is that school, and B is where we, uh, and B is where we ended up. And that distance 
is only about two thirds by. So it was only two thirds of a mile, but it was one of the longest. It felt like one of the longest drives ever. Now, remember at this point, I had no communication with the outside world. No, nothing, no radar. I had no idea when the backside was going to hit. And if we were stuck out on the road, and in in those winds, we'd be dead. So it was a scary drive. Of course, the highway was littered with debris, and we were having, you know, I was having to drive onto the grass and all kinds of crazy stuff. But eventually we did make it to the Bahamas government complex. But when we got to this building, this is the biggest building on the island, and and we were in the eye. And it was like people from every direction were running toward this building and driving toward it. It was like this mecca. People whose houses had collapsed, people who had swam to safety from the storm surge. Everyone like was just like us with like these desperate rats. We were all just trying to get inside this building before the backside hit. And hundreds of people packed into this building before the backside of the cyclone hit. Thanks for joining us on Hurricane Center. Produced by the Storm Science Network and made possible by USAA, South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylux Hurricane Clips. You can find other episodes on HurricaneCenterLive.com. <laughs>